What's up and welcome to another special episode of The Vast Podcast. If you're listening to this episode, do me a huge favor and stop and go back and listen to episode 30, which was a lecture by Dr. David Campbell called The Truth of the Bible in a Postmodern World. The reason I want you to go back and listen to that first is because this episode is a follow-up Q&A we did with Dr. David Campbell about the lecture that he had just given. It is just an amazing conversation with Jake and David and his wife, Elaine, that um, goes so many different directions but is such a helpful follow-up to the lecture. So make sure that you listen to that lecture before listening to this episode. This lecture by David is called The Truth of the Bible in a Postmodern World and is an abbreviated version of a course he does on Theos University called Battle for the Bible. Going to link to that course and to Theos University in the show notes because you can get the full course there. It's four and a half hours and it goes so much more in depth. And we are massive fans here at the vast podcast of Theos University. They create digestible courses for Christians to know the Bible in context and experience spiritual transformation. And that's all for the price of Netflix. I think it's like 14, around 14 bucks a month for their basic subscription. You get unlimited access to seminary level teaching in plain English. So make sure that you listen to these and then go follow up and subscribe to Theos University. Theos, 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 I say it uh, a different way every time I say it. Uh, but make sure you go to that, sign up, subscribe. There are literally dozens and dozens of courses from the best Bible teachers out there. Okay, well, let's go into this Q&A that Jake did with Dr. David Campbell and his wife, Elaine, after his lecture, The Truth of the Bible in a Postmodern World. And we'll talk to you soon. Um, so... Uh, we've got about uh, 45 minutes, uh, and I have a, uh, a bucket of chicken load of questions to get through. So uh, let's do this. L can you try to give, like, your elevator pitch answer to these? Not like, you know, you're sitting on a flight flying across the world answer, so that we can try to get through these as, as many of these as possible. Um, and I'll try to interpret them on the fly. And these are wonderful questions. Okay, so... Um, where to begin? Thank you guys for these great questions. Really appreciate you. Some of these are more th theological and a bit more narrowly focused. So I want to get there uh, second and starting a bit more broad. Um, I'm going to begin here. Uh, so when you're talking at the start about Jesus affirming the truth of the Old Testament... Um, and therefore, we as Christians should see the Old Testament as truthful and applicable to us today. How would you then extrapolate that out to the New Testament? Uh, if I believe Jesus, great. Why should I believe Paul? Why should I believe John, Peter, Jude, so on and so forth? Uh, I'm trying to understand what you're saying. Uh, so if I, uh, if I believe Jesus has recorded in Matthew... Yep. Uh, why should I read Galatians as authoritative for me as a Christian? Well, uh, in that course, in parts that I haven't had a chance to cover, uh, I talk about the concept of the canon of the New Testament. One of the remarkable things is that in the early history of the church, within uh, 
a generation or two, uh, almost the entirety of the New Testament as we have it today was agreed upon uh, to be authoritative. And the interesting part is the structure. It's like I pointed out, the structure, the treaty structure is the same as the Old Testament. You've got the Gospels are the narrative record of Jesus' ministry. Uh, the covenant is Jesus' death uh, and obviously his resurrection. And the letters uh, of the apostles, I mean, Jesus chose the apostles and he said, I'm going to send you my Holy Spirit so that you'll understand uh, what it is that I'm teaching in John 15. When he said that, he wasn't talking about um, the ministry of the Holy Spirit to us today. He was talking to the people he was, he was addressing the people he was speaking to. He was saying the Holy Spirit is going to come and give you an authoritative record, right? And that includes the apostolic letters we have and the book of Revelation. So, uh, and it's interesting that if you look at the New Testament, that it is doctrinally cohesive. It isn't that when you look at other ancient pieces of literature, uh, in, in Christian literature, <clears throat> you find that uh, none of them present themselves as being authoritative, and many of them are contain pieces of thinking and doctrine that are out of line with the New Testament record, uh, because within several generations, Satan sent people into the church to take it away from the truth. Um, but the New Testament comes cohesively. It's a package. Ultimately, you have to accept it by faith. It's true. Uh, but the question is, does the biblical record best account for reality as it exists? And for reality as you found it in your life. Uh, ultimately, all of us have to make a decision of faith in Christ as our Savior, but the fact is you wouldn't know who Christ was without the written record of the New Testament. Exactly. So it involves a step of faith. Mm -hmm. And personally, i found that God speaks to me regularly through the Scriptures. The Holy Spirit speaks to me in a way that he doesn't speak to me otherwise. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, so it's an imperfect answer. It's too long, my wife says. Okay. That's okay. <laughs> Would I be uh, correct in thinking that um, Jesus, in sending the apostles out to preach the gospel, would have an expectation upon us that we believe their testimony? Well, yeah. So is it, would it be appropriate to say that... Uh, their written testimony is uh, meant by Christ for us to be received as authoritative? Oh, you see, you've answered the question better than me. <laughs> Sometimes I get in arguments with liberal theolo theolo theologians um, via DMs. <laughs> and uh, one of the points I was trying to make to... Uh, one at one juncture was that when Jesus said, I'll give you the Holy Spirit and he will lead you into all truth, mm -hmm. we are not to take that today as that the Holy Spirit is leading me personally into truth that is contradictory to or 
more modernized than the truth that's given to us in the Bible, but that is indeed Jesus saying to the 11, excluding Judas, that the Holy Spirit was going to lead them into all the truth and bring to their remembrance things that he had said to them. Yeah, he was speaking to the apostles that I'll lead you into truth, you'll record this, and then the Apostle Paul, for instance, says in 1 Corinthians 15, all I'm doing is taking what's been handed down to me. And he was writing only 20 years later, you know, roughly. Uh, so the, the New Testament church had a clearly, very clear understanding of what the gospel was, what the gospel record was, what it contained, and that our job was not to invent something new, but was to preach what had been transmitted and handed down. Great. Um, next question. Uh, I'll just read the whole thing. I believe the Bible is truth, but how do we know which denomination interprets the Bible correctly? For example, the Assemblies of God believes you have to speak in tongues to be baptized in the Holy Spirit, or Calvinists believe some are predestined to hell. Do you Calvinists believe that? Uh, how do you navigate through this? And I guess I would just add, um, do we need to have total agreement on secondary or tertiary doctrines? Right. Well, uh, no, uh, Calvin didn't teach that, actually. It's a misunderstanding. Uh, Calvin taught that all of us have been given free will and have rejected God, and God has chosen to save some, but never that God predestined anyone to hell. That's another matter. But we can have uh, my experience from 40 years of walking with Christ and in Christian leadership is that the points in which we differ are peripheral. They really are. I mean, what it's a peripheral point when you argue about speaking in tongues. It doesn't make any difference to our fellowship or our commitment to Christ. And for the most part, we'll all say to each other, well, this is my position, but I could be wrong. Uh, so uh, to me, and then there's a, a massive difference, a whole world of difference between that and someone, let's say a Mormon coming in or a Jehovah's Witness coming in. That's completely different. So for those that accept the authority of the Bible, there's remarkably little difference. There's no difference. If you look at any statement of faith, I don't care of any evangelical, let's say, Bible-believing denomination, whether it's the Assemblies of God or the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod at the other end or anything in between, it's the same. It's fundamentally identical. We agree on core doctrine. And core doctrine yeah. is all that's most important. Everything else is peripheral bits and pieces on which I happen to be correct and other people may be wrong. <laughs> but... <laughs> well said. Um, next question. The Jews have two Torahs, a written Torah and an oral Torah which was unrecorded in written form until the creation of the Talmud after the fall of the Second Temple. Does this oral tradition and the changing nature of language influence how you understand Scripture and the Covenant? How does oral tradition influence how we should understand the New well, Testament? Well, you see, it was, it was that that Jesus attacked. I mean, the written covenant was that which was given to Moses. And if you talk to any Orthodox Jew, uh, that holds priority over uh, any Talmudic interpretation. Most people wouldn't understand what the history of all that is. But um, basically, you have a Jewish theological commentaries. That's, that's what they are. And uh, they're trying to make sense of, and that's where you get all the hundreds of laws. 
excuse me, that the Pharisees held, for instance, the Sadducees that didn't believe in the afterlife that Jesus counteracted. Those were people who pontificated on or meditated on or conducted theological studies on the Old Testament, and some parts they got right. You know, when Jesus said, what's the heart of the law? That you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Love your neighbors yourself. The Pharisee got that right. And he said, you're not far from the kingdom, right? What they didn't get right was the, the scriptures were pointing to him. Um, but a lot of that Jewish tradition migrated further and further away. For See, the covenant was given by grace. And religion operates by legalism. Still true today. We just come from a church, for instance, that's where people have all been in the Amish community and they got saved. And they're very sensitive to legalism because they've lived in it all their life. It's no different from the Pharisees. So the more you go into legalism and away from a spirit-led life, the more your interpretation of Scripture will become twisted and distorted. Wow. And that's what happened in a lot of Jewish rabbinic theology, which is what Jesus was contending with. So when they ask, how does oral tradition influence how we should understand the New Testament? I, I, it doesn't influence us. Right. Maybe the question behind the question shouldn't. is, um, can we trust documents that are the recording of teachings passed on orally? Maybe that's the question. Well, the, the, uh, again, I go back to the point that the Jewish people accepted the Torah, which is the laws given to Moses, as uniquely authoritative. And the rest of it was not, the, you know, within Jewish theology, which developed, we're, not, we're talking now at or after, later than the time of Jesus, mostly a couple hundred years after the time of Jesus, when it was written down. All the speculations of Jewish theology carry no more weight than the speculations of somebody else's theology. That's not scripture. It, some of it may have insight, some of it may have no insight at all. But the problem was that when they rejected Jesus, they rejected Jesus because they had a fundamental misinterpretation of what the Torah was. Mm -hmm. And so they didn't get it. So that's not where we get our understanding from. Mm -hmm. Now, historically, can you understand aspects of the New Testament world from understanding the history of what's called Second Temple Judaism? Uh, yes, you can. It throws some light and understanding on it, the same as any other, other history would, but not on doctrine. It doesn't influence how we, we, we get our doctrine from the Old Testament. Elaine, feel free to grab the microphone whenever you would like. Hi. <laughs> yep, great. Her role is knocking sense into me anyway. <laughs> um, okay, let me shift gears a little bit. So, Just say something yeah, quickly. Please. I just think when you, even when you're studying the Bible on this level, I'm not an academic nor a theologian, but you know what strikes me is you cannot separate it from having a relationship with God because you know um, there the, just there shouldn't be a separation. It's not like the Bible's here and you know, what we think about God, what we feel about God, what we believe is sort of over here. Like he is the word. Mm -hmm. So when it comes to sort of the, as I would call it, the nitty gritty sort of things, um, I mean, what lens are you looking at it from? It has to be through the lens of a relationship with God mm -hmm. at the bottom line. Mm -hmm. anyway. 
Wonderful. Um, let me, yeah. Let me shift gears a little bit. So one of the things that is uh, plaguing Christians right now is something that's referred to as deconstruction, um, which I think oftentimes is a word misused. Um, but I think this connects to the idea of the Bible in, in postmodern society. So um, one of the criticisms of, uh, let's call it liberal theology or, or deconstruction um, is that we cannot objectively know what the scriptures are saying. Um, we cannot ob objectively know what the authors intended to say to the people that they were writing to. How do you answer that? Yeah, well, I, I say I go back to the what basis are, where are people coming from that are making statements like that? And, uh, de you know, uh, deconstructionism, uh, I'm not a philosopher, but it goes back to a man called Derrida, who was uh, in vogue just at and before the time that I was an undergraduate, which is a long time ago. Uh, but he basically was the heir of a French tradition, <clears throat> the existentialists and so on, that felt everything was meaningless. And uh, he was very, um, he got very disillusioned with uh, the state of existentialism. Uh, and he, he, he said, okay, let's just, we can use language to make up our own reality, whatever we want to. It, it didn't make sense at the time, which was why nobody really believed in it. And then about 25 years later, it was taken over by some other people who said, well, uh, let's change, re we can change reality by putting different definitions on it. So there's no such thing as male and female anymore. We'll just say that uh, you can be anything you like. It doesn't detach from any scientific evidence or proof. Um, and so, uh, uh, but then what those people did was they attached a great deal of meaning to it and value because the original deconstructionists said there's no meaning or value to anything in reality. Um, but they sort of took the part where you can create whatever you want by speaking. You can have your own individual portion of truth in your own little world and, and, and nobody can challenge it. But they began putting value on it and imposing it on other people. So, you know, critical theory as, as, as we have it today is, um, is full of value judgments of what is right and what is wrong. It's just that they have no source f for, from which to judge right from wrong other than the words they've created, if that makes sense. Well, it doesn't make sense. Um, so they've, anyway, uh, and this word deconstruct, people don't even know what they're talking about. It's going back to something that's unrecognizable from the original deconstructionists. All they've done is, in my opinion, opposed, imposed uh, a, a Marxist view of, of history attached with a few other philosophical things from 18th, 19th century Germany, uh, and they melded it all into a new philosophy and tried to pass it off as something that 
you know, nobody's ever thought of before. And I can't, you know, like, I, I, I have another whole course that goes on for four or five hours in which I try to go through this logically and, and, and historically as best I can. I can't really address it in a question like this. Um, but I just think the battle is always, Pilate said, what is truth? Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And he, he had this confrontation with Pilate. Pilate was scared stiff because he thought Jesus was fomenting a rebellion. The streets of Jerusalem were, were, you know, and his job was at stake, his life was at stake. And he says, you know, you say you're a king. What's going on here? And Jesus says, my kingdom's not of this world. What? 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 You know, what's happening here? And uh, Jesus said, no, I've come to testify to the truth. Well, Pilate was mightily relieved because, you know, his job was safe. But he also was puzzled, and he just said, well, what's truth? Because that was the Roman attitude, because they were postmodernists, really. Right. And we're facing the same battle today. What is truth? But you see, the same people that say, what is truth, and you can't present Christianity as a system of truth, will then impose their absolute truth on us. That's the problem. The difference is this. We have a rational, um, we have a rational basis for our truth, which is the existence of a personal creator, supernatural God, who created us in his own image and gave us the capacity to understand and to reason. They don't have any basis for their development of truth, right and wrong, because in their view, we're only, we're no different from the animals. Mm -hmm. That's exactly right, yeah. Um, And I guess in some sense then, it becomes difficult to uh, what happens when truth becomes relative is everything everything becomes political because what we claim to be true we are then claiming as something to be worth defending and fighting for and establishing as a form of justice in society so one of the things that I've been feeling as a pastor is that uh, while Christians are uh, to be very cautious in the way we navigate navigate the realm of politics, uh, in one sense, it's almost impossible not to be perceived as political. Because if I have a view on what is a man and what is a woman, all of a sudden, I am getting political, because that is in the political sphere. If I have a view on what constitutes a marriage, then all of a sudden, I am getting political. Do you have any wisdom for how we can navigate Well, it's our personal witness. We follow the one who gave up all of his rights, even though he had every right in the universe. And so we don't come to people uh, saying, uh, here's what we believe. If you don't believe, accept what we believe, we're going to cancel you. We come to people saying, here's what we believe. You can kill me if you want, but I'll still love you. Great. And that, that's the... That's the power of our, of our witness. Uh, and I feel that we have to come to the world as people who are prepared to lay down our rights. When Christians are out there demonstrating for their rights, we've totally lost the meaning of the Bible. Totally lost it. Uh, so, you know, Luther said, here I stand. I, I can't do anything else. Uh, kill me if you want. Uh, I'll stand for the truth, but I'm not going to do what, you know, in his case, the institution of the Roman Catholic Church was killing everyone that 
were killing many people who disagreed and so on, and Luther was under threat of death. He wasn't going to kill anybody even if he could, but he was just saying, I'm not moving for my principles. Right. This is what I believe. There's a little story that um, I think kind of demonstrates, if I can talk about the mask thing a bit, but um, the pastor of the local church with, that we attend in, in Canada, he, um, he went out to the gas station one day and he was a bit disgruntled, you know, and he thought, I'm not going to bother wearing my mask. And he went in to, to pay for his gas. And, of course, the, the girl there said, I'm sorry, sir. Um, you know, could you please put your mask on? So he walks back to his car. And he felt the Holy Spirit just spoke to him and said, did you ask her how her day was? And he thought, okay. So he puts his mask on, goes back into the kiosk and, and pays for his gas. And then he says, how, how was your day? Well, then she totally opened up and started talking about, you know, the burden that she's under and personal stuff. And it was just a really, you know, great moment. Um, and it, she just, it was like the lid came off. And as he's walking back to, the, to his car, again, the Holy Spirit speaks to him and said, now that's my kingdom. And I thought, yes, yes, you know, what was more important in that scenario? Wonderful. It sounds like there's some nuance between uh, standing on truth and defending a right, and those kinds of matters require some careful thought. Um, okay, let's move on. These questions are also you guys are great. These are equal parts philosophical and theological. So let's tackle some theological ones. Um, uh, let's do this. What is your view on free will versus predestination? How did I get into this talk? <laughs> since, <laughs> since uh, by the way, my friend uh, Matt Shackelford is here. Matt, stand up and say hi to everybody. Matt is the uh, first person I met on the day that I moved to America in 1996, and we've been like best friends ever since, so that's the power of church. Um, so what is your view on free will versus predestination? Since God knows all, then how is there free will? 60 seconds or less, please. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll defer to Matt Shackelford on this one. Anyway, um, because God created us in his image and he gave us free will. Like, you know, we have free will because God gave it to us. Uh, it's like the Trinity. God, the Bible teaches two things, um, that God is sovereign and that we are responsible for our sin. And there are two truths that are to be held in tension. If you don't hold them in tension and try to rationally you know, find a way of mi mixing them up together and, and cohering them or whatever, you'll, you'll, you'll miss it. Um, so isn't that the Bible is irrational? No, it's that just like the Trinity, you, our minds are not rational enough to comprehend the rationality of God. So, it's, it, but, so what we do is where the Bible presents truths that are not contradictory but they have to be held in tension. In other words, we have to accept both of them because they both expect at, express aspects of the truth. Um, 
And instead of trying to find a rationalistic uh, explanation of, you know, going beyond the Bible of how that all works, um, we just accept them and operate on the basis that both God is sovereign and that we are responsible, that God has free will and is sovereign, but that he has given free will to us. But I mean, it, it's clear that if we're created in his image, that's where the free will comes from, that we're not God. That, I'm sorry if that hurts your feelings, but you're not. And I suppose that God is just and therefore justly holds us responsible for our sin and therefore implicit in that is that we have free will in choosing how we live. Um, the scriptures teach in Romans 1.16, this is a question submitted, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it's the power of God unto salvation to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. Uh, Jesus says in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and life. No one can come to the Father except through me. Uh, what does this mean for Jews who do not believe in Jesus? And maybe this gets into some of your well, views on the uh, church. You know, the, Paul, the Apostle Paul in Romans 9, 10, and 11 answers the question uh, because Romans was a partly Jewish, majority Gentile, minority Jewish church. There was tension between the two factions. <clears throat> and uh, the Jewish people in the congregation were thinking, like, is there still a hope? for our Jewish um, relatives, so to speak, for our, our people. Because evidently, you know, most of them have rejected Christ. And uh, uh, the New Testament record shows that. So Paul explains that there is an elect remnant, that all through history, that God made a covenant with the Jewish people, but those who actually responded in faith were only a percentage of the people. Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. See that there's there's some there was a there was a remnant of people throughout the Old Testament, you know, the good kings, the bad kings, and all the rest of it. Only a minority of the people actually were faithful. Um, and so Paul says that's still the case today. Only a minority of Jewish people found Christ as their savior. Uh, but he said, um, there's hope coming. And he prophesies at the end of Romans 11 that before the Lord returns, there'll be an end times harvest and revival among the Jewish people because God made a covenant with Abraham. So I'm very clear in teaching, uh, while I do not believe that God has any purpose whatsoever for the political state of Israel, I don't find that anywhere in the Bible, uh, I do believe that God has a care for the Jewish people and uh, that before the Lord returns, uh, there will be a harvest among the Jewish people. How will they come to faith? They will come to faith the same way you and I come to faith, through faith in the finished work of Christ. Can you just expound upon dispensational, dispensationalism? Eesh, only, should... only because what you're saying can be quite radical to uh, some American believers because we grew up with left-behind theology. Yeah, and I... I can't, the short answer is I, I can't give a quick answer to that. Um, if you, it's another opportunity for me to say I have written this wonderful little book called Mystery Explained. And it's a uh, wonderful book. Uh, in it, I, let me just say this. Um, the sort of what you encounter as in the form of the left behind, you know, rapture teaching or whatever which you probably haven't thought about very much, but it's just there. Uh, that is not orthodox historical uh, biblical teaching. It's something that was invented in the 1830s. 
and uh, I give the background to this, I think, in that book. Um, and so uh, what I try to do when I'm teaching through the book of Revelation or in First and Second Thessalonians or in Matthew, the parts of the Gospels where Jesus talks about the end times, Matthew 24, Luke 21, Mark 13, I try to show how there's only one return of Christ, there's no rapture. There's no secret return of Christ anywhere in the Bible. There's no seven-year tribulation anywhere in the Bible. There's no rebuilding of the temple and reinstitution of the law because that's been done away with once and for all. That's not in the Bible. And all these pieces that are part of that whole system of thinking are incorrect. Now, I'm not saying that people who hold that are heretics because in other parts... They're orthodox people who love Jesus and so on. I'm just saying their eschatology is wrong. And the main negative effect of it is, because your eschatology does affect other things, is a mentality of fear. It is an attitude that God has lost control of this world and he has to take us out like Afghanistan and Saigon 50 years ago. We're going to have to be airlifted out, literally. Airlifted out because God's lost control and people become fixated on the authority of the devil. They're looking for the Antichrist around every corner, and they start interpreting the Bible from the latest news reports on, you know, CNN or Fox, depending whether you're a Democrat or Republican. You can be both and be safe. So people, somebody said to me once, you must be a Republican. I said, not at all. I'm a monarchist. I'm a loyal subject of Her Majesty the Queen. I'm not a Republican. <laughs> Ever since you threw all the tea into the harbor, you can't get a decent cup of tea in this country. <laughs> the curse on your rebellion. God bless you all. Anyway, <laughs> so uh, those are the things that, um, you know, whereas the, 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 the book of Revelation teaches that God is sovereign. I am the Alpha and the Omega. I am the Lord of the beginning of history, the Lord of end of the history, the Lord of everything in between. It's a message to a church that's suffering, saying, don't compromise. I am in charge. Even the plagues and the judgments that are going on in the world, including COVID and everything else, which is a classic plague of Revelation, as I understand it, uh, come ultimately from the throne of God to challenge a complacent church and to shake up a disobedient, idolatrous world. And God is working out his purposes and all those things. Um, and they won't end, by the way, until God decides they're going to end. But the main thing is Jesus is on the throne. God is on the throne. There's no fear. We're not being controlled by the latest version of the Antichrist or whatever. It's why Christians fall. So they're the first group of people that fall into conspiracy theories. It's so pathetic. You know, how many times I was on Instagram with people that were, oh, Bill Gates has put the microchip into the vaccine. I don't think he's <laughs> smart enough to do that. I don't think there's any human government that's smart enough to organize the Great Reset, whatever that is, the New World Order. They're, honestly. He could go on all night on <laughs> that subject. I think one of the things in listening to David uh, that always helped me was, I think he did mention it earlier, that the book of Revelation is a pastoral letter 
written to the church in ev for every generation. It's not just about the, the last bit before Jesus returns. Therefore, it has relevance for every believer, you know, from when, from when the church began after the resurrection to when Jesus returns. And apart from the, you would say, the last bit, you know, where it is uh, prophetic. Um, and, you know, I think, I mean, it isn't an easy book to read, but, you know, I think there's a, there is a lot in it that, that gives you a lens through which to look on a lot of, um, you know, of, well, it just gives a perspective, I think, on a lot of things we face in the Christian walk. So that was the one that always helped me. When you were speaking about the curses uh, that both uh, the Old Testament and the New Testament describe for those who take away or add to uh, God's holy scripture, um, how do you uh, view that then in relation to um, biblical translations, especially those that are more modern, like the Message or New Living Translation, something like that? not a translation. <laughs> there you go. Uh, Speaking of the message. No, a tra translations are, uh, you know, it's just a motivation to be accurate. Mm -hmm. And so what I say to people, I mean, mo most all the translations are good. Some of them, you know, lean a little bit to being more literalistic, some a little bit toward easier to understand. Um, just please be careful if you're reading uh, the message, or particularly the passion, uh, you know, it's not a translation. It's yeah. somebody's interpretation. They're reading their own uh, views into, they can't avoid reading their own views into the Bible, particularly, in the, that's true of the passion uh, version, or whatever it is, uh, whatever you want to describe it as. There's a lot of theology written into it. Um, so I just plead with people, don't, not actually don't use those. Mm -hmm. uh, get an ESV or a CSV or an NIV or, you know, any one of, we're blessed with any number of good translations in the English language. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, don't use those. And I beg preachers, please don't preach from that. When you say that, can you be specific? from the message or from the passion uh, I think they call it the passion translation they do call it a translation. A translation my understanding it's of absolutely the, not a translation yes my understanding of the passion is um, that the uh, the man who did the translation uh, even speaks of having some prophetic dreams of God inspiring him to record well I doubt he knew a word of Greek or Hebrew yeah so uh, that's my way of putting out a warning about the Passion Translation. Um, don't, just don't. I, I, I'm, I hate to be so hard-hearted yeah. or whatever, and I'm not saying that, you know, it's like the guy could have had some insight into something the same way when Jake or me are preaching, we have some insight into something, but when Jake or me are preaching, you're separating our preaching from the text of Scripture. Correct. But when you're reading the Passion, you, you're not separating it. You're, you're reading somebody's preaching and receiving it as scripture. Mm -hmm. So don't. So if you use it, please beware. Mm -hmm. You can rebuke me if you want, but I would draw a line of differentiation between that and the message. The message being put forward as um, a paraphrase, uh, Eugene Peterson being a pretty credible 
scholar, as I understand, would you say? Yes. Supplemental. But I, I still, people, read it instead of the Bible, which I don't right. think Eugene Peterson ever intended. He never intended that. Right? Yep. Yep. Very good. Um, gosh, there's so many questions to choose from. You guys made this really hard. Okay, here's a curveball. Uh, let's talk about Nephilim. So, <laughs> do you want to talk about Nephilim? No. No. Great. <laughs> Next question. Wonderful. Um, it's a peripheral thing. Michael, I've, there's something on Theosu that I've done on this. Yep. So if you're that interested in finding out, you know, if you're cheap, then I'll get a one-month free subscription for you. You can look at the course, and that'll yep. answer your question. There's also a great book called The Unseen Realm by uh, Michael Heiser. Uh, wonderful book all about the supernatural reality to the Bible. Um, and he comments quite extensively on the Nephilim. And it is fascinating, ladies and gentlemen. Wonderful stuff. Okay, okay, we got time for maybe a couple of more. Um, what do you believe is the biggest lie affecting the modern church right now? The biggest lie affecting the modern church right now? Well, the biggest lie is always about truth. Because if, if the biggest lie is that the Bible isn't truth, and then Jesus isn't ultimate truth, that's the biggest, that's the biggest lie. Because once we've believed that, we've got nothing left. We lose everything, as you we said. We lose everything. Yeah. You know, it's, it, you know, like I said, modern culture is, you know, they want to have their cake and eat it too. They claim there's no truth, but then they superimpose their own truth. They just don't have a reason for truth themselves. We have a reason to be able to state that we believe in ultimate truth. Mm -hmm. Even the statement, somebody says, well, I don't believe in, all, in absolute truth. Well, you just made an absolute truth claim. <laughs> it's true. So I have a reason, coherent, rational reason, for stating why I believe in ultimate truth. Because there is a personal creator, God, who created this whole universe that has given me uh, a capacity to understand truth. Right. Now, you may not agree with that, but you can't deny it's coherent. Mm -hmm. If you come along and say, I don't believe in any of that, then I have the right to come back to you and say, where do you believe this whole thing came from? Well, it was just a giant cosmic accident. Well, who are you then? Well, I'm just a collection of atoms. Well, why would you think you can think any rational thought? Where did that come from? Checkmate. Yeah. I just... Uh... They get mad when you say that. I recently uh, finished up a book um, on Jacques Derrida, uh, who many call the father of deconstruction. I found this quote really helpful. Um, he says this, the author, uh, to assume that human beings can speak adequately of God would be arrogance and hubris, which is essentially uh, uh, what liberal theology tries to level at. Biblical theology uh, is that for us just to say that the people who uh, wrote the Bible um, and to believe that they are speaking accurately of God is, is arrogant. Um, and, and as a matter of fact, it is arrogant to think that we could speak accurately of God. Um, but one of the things that uh, people who can't adhere to the idea of objective biblical truth don't think about is that communication isn't just uh, a human thing, it's also a God thing. And so the second part of the quote is this, but to assume that God cannot speak adequately of himself would be presumption and would be just as arrogant. And so that goes back to that idea. I think you even touched on that in your, in your teaching, that God... Right. Go ahead. So, and then, then I say to Professor Dorita, well, 
what right have you to limit God? You know, where do you get the capacity, intellectual capacity, to make a judgment like that about the creator of the universe from? Because the only place you could have got it from is the creator of the universe, in which case you, you're logically contradictory in your own thinking. So, anyway. Yes. And I would just say as a, a, you know, a warning to, or an encouragement or both to all of us is we believe in common grace. And so we don't believe that somebody has to be a follower of Jesus to say true things. Um, however, when you're looking at ideologies that are floating around in the world, it's really Im important that you take a moment and go, uh, does this person's ideology trace back to a belief in a personal authoritative God? Because if their ideology does not trace back to a belief in a personal authoritative God, then uh, while they may be able to say true things, you should not receive it as total truth. And um, which is another great book, by the way, that I encourage you to read. Where the apprentice is at? Any apprentices in the house? Yeah. Um, and so that's a really important thing. You don't just bring things in wholesale and receive it all as a complete package of truth, even though they might have some true things to say about reality. Um, because ultimately the foundation is completely different to your worldview if they don't believe in the existence of a personal authoritative God. Last question, then we're all done. Um, I think this is a good one to end in. Uh, you mentioned earlier that the reckoning that's happening in the church, great word, reckoning, yeah, love that. You mentioned earlier that the reckoning that's happening in the church um, in the view of pop culture, I think they're talking about uh, just people's view of the Bible, um, and even how that seeped into the church, how... You know, you can walk into a church now and not actually know confidently, how do these people feel about the Bible? That's why when we were looking at our core convictions in 2020, we're like, number two is the Bible is his word. Because we just want people to know, you know, what we believe. Like, I don't want somebody to spend eight months in our church. By the way, if you ever kind of feel like I'm a little bit too direct about what we believe when it comes to like sexuality and gender and, and stuff like that, like we put it on our website. The reason we do that is because I don't want somebody spending a year in our church thinking we believe one thing when really we believe another. And so they get all kinds of involved and they start to give and they start to serve. And then, you know, one day down the track, a year later, they find out, oh, actually, we believe that a marriage is between a man and a woman who were born a man and a woman. And uh, they get all up in a tiff because we led them down a path that they thought we believed one thing, but we really believed another. So I think it's important to be honest about what we believe. Um, and there's uh, great value in that. So um, anyway, that was a tangent. Um, so reckoning that's happening in the church in the view of pop culture isn't new. It's been around forever. How have you both protected your hearts from getting cynical toward the church for the last 40 years? Well, you know, you, you can't, uh, you have to keep your eyes on the Lord because people are imperfect. And when you look in the mirror, you realize that I'm imperfect too. And Jesus told the parable of the two debtors, he's forgiven me, so who am I to go and treat the next guy? You know, anyone, people that we had problems with, people left our church, people that treat us badly, we always try by the grace of God to stay on good terms with them. And, uh, and then you watch as people's lives disintegrate and marriages disintegrate. And, you know, you don't take pleasure in it, but you just realize that there's the consequences of their own actions. But at least, you know, we were retain good relationship with people rather than being bitter? I think uh, kind of what fueled me to keep us going all that time was at some point, it took me a while to see it this way, I realized that 
everything that we do, uh, that we do to serve Jesus, whether it's investing in somebody in the church, whether it's talking to my neighbor, whether it's my own children, um, whatever investment we're making is an act of worship. And it's always seen in the eternal realm. So, you know, and I think when we think of that verse, your labor is not in vain. I think every single thing you do unto the Lord is never going to be in vain. And it's never going to be wasted. Even if you don't see results, um, you know, in this life, let's say, and, um, we will see the results in eternity. And ultimately, that's what matters. So that, I think, was the bit for the, you know, the baseline for me that kept me going was I knew that it was just, it was never a waste. Wonderful. Um, let me close with a quote that I heard this week that God doesn't measure the church, he weighs it. And so what we are interested in is making and multiplying disciples of Jesus Christ, digging deep wells in people, helping us to know and abide by truth. Um, because we want, we want big Christians, and we want our church to weigh a lot. And sometimes the weight of our church might mean that we're slightly less seeker-sensitive. That doesn't mean that we're not going to be hyper-evangelistic and reaching people, and, and God is going to grow this church, um, not in spite of the truth, but because of the truth. And in that process, though, we're, we're not willing to sacrifice growing big people because, again, God's not, he's, you know, he's not counting chairs. God's weighing the, um, the, the size of this church in, in a spiritual sense, and so that's really important. Father God, we thank you so much for this night. Thanks so much for helping us to grow and learn and uh, just to have some time to hear stuff that we don't normally get to hear and to ask questions that we don't normally get to ask. And uh, we pray, Lord, as we go out of this place tonight, just for a spirit of joy uh, as we recognize that you're God and we're not. And so we don't actually need to have all of the answers all the time. We just pray that uh, you would take this knowledge and you would turn it into uh, deep abiding revelation and that you would help us to be witnesses to you, to your lordship, to your glory, and help us to go out this week and to love people well um, and to be used by your Holy Spirit in coffee shops, in the workplace, wherever we find ourselves, Lord God. Help us to resist quarrel and to embrace invitation, to embrace conversation, to embrace um, love, Lord God, and lead us in that love so that we can make a difference in the lives of people. In Jesus' mighty name we pray, and everybody said, Amen. God bless you guys.